Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message entitled, In Defense of the Jewishness of the Gospel. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 7, verses 1 to 38, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. For 2,000 years, Christians have had to answer the question of whether Christianity is a new religion. It's many years ago now that it happened during a summer when I was taking class in Hebrew language studies while at seminary in Southern California. And one day our professor announced that we were going to be involved in a field trip to an area in Los Angeles that was a very Jewish area. And there we visited a Hasidic Jewish bookstore and we spoke to one of the rabbis there and we ate in a Jewish restaurant. And again, we engaged with the Jewish patrons and workers in that restaurant. It was, it was a wonderful experience. It was a time in my life where I had never interacted with a religious Jew before. But I was amazed to see a number of posters in the area which warned against the encroachment of Christian missionaries. One of the posters said that the Christian religion destroys the Jewish people, does away with both our faith and our heritage, it said. If you want to defend your Jewishness, resist missionaries who will want to assimilate you. Well, I was shocked at what I read, but it made me think. You know, if, for instance, Paul taught that in Christ, one new man has been created out of the two, that is, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Jesus. Well, does that mean there's no room for a distinct Jewish identity? And would that message, if it were accepted, eventually mean the end of the Jewish people as a separate nation? See, these posters made me think and wonder what we should say in response. And by the way, I've frequently found that the critics of our faith can cause us to think more clearly and come to more thoughtful understandings of what the Bible actually teaches and what it doesn't. Well, unlike my first encounter with Orthodox Judaism, which was a little more on the Arenic side, Stephen found a very different reaction. Although he was a Jew himself, you're going to notice that he's charged with three crimes. In Acts 6.11, it records his accuser saying that he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses. And then the same verse also records a second charge, even more serious. He's speaking blasphemous words against God. Then according to verse 13, Stephen was speaking words against this holy place, which by that they meant the temple. And then again in verse 13, he's also speaking against the law, which I put as a subcategory under the first charge that he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses. So since Moses was the lawgiver, I take those charges to be one and the same. And then the next charge found in verse 14 is the charge that he has taught that Jesus will destroy the temple and that Jesus will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So putting it all together, I'm summarizing the charges. He blasphemes God, he blasphemes Moses, and he thinks the temple and the land of Israel, along with its customs, are supposed to be changed. He's a, a danger to our nation and our faith, and he must be prosecuted. See, I want you to notice that no one was asking Stephen about what he actually thought about Jesus, or whether there was evidence of the resurrection from the dead, or for that matter, how was he doing the miracles that he was doing? See, the argument was that if this man is not stopped, he's going to destroy the faith of Israel. That sounds very similar to what I saw that day in Los Angeles as I read those posters of the dangers of Christianity to the national survival of Israel. 
Christianity from those posters presented a real and present danger, and it must be resisted with all the energy that faithful Jews had. You know, many in Israel feel that way today, and frankly, some recent pastors haven't helped a great deal. You know, one pastor recently said that, you know, now that Christ has come, the Old Testament is no longer valid or it's no longer even valuable. It makes it sound as if Christianity is the new religion destined to replace the faith of Abraham, which is now outdated. See, as long as Christians teach that, Israel will always hear the gospel as a threat that they will utterly reject. Stephen's speech, the one that eventually got him killed, is important for all Christians who wish to understand their own faith. See, in this speech, Stephen denies that he opposes God. He denies that he opposes Moses or the temple or the land of Israel. But he does invite his accusers to consider their charges. That is, are you really right when you make those accusations? Indeed, they might want to consider their own guilt and apply those charges to themselves. Because Stephen's speech is quite long, we're only going to look at the first part today, and then I'm going to carry on again tomorrow. So let's jump right in. I'm reading Acts 7, 1 to 8. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. After this, his father died and God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. You know, a great many Bible commentators you know, have wondered how this part of Stephen's defense is any defense at all. I mean, after all, Stephen doesn't seem to be answering any of the three charges. This man blasphemes Moses. He blasphemes God. He speaks against the temple. And instead of responding, Stephen seems to be giving an account of the history of Abraham. And to that, we've got to notice several things. First, Stephen shows that he's very familiar with the history of Israel. He clearly loves recounting the story. You know, in some ways, and this does get at some of the concerns, that he's attempting to subvert the nation. But also notice, second, that in recounting the story of Abraham, Stephen is recounting that story that Moses has written down. He's demonstrating that he doesn't have contempt for Moses. He regards the writings of Moses as true. But those two matters still don't get at what Stephen is up to. In recounting the story of Abraham's call to leave Haran and then to go to the promised land, Stephen is making a very telling statement. Look again at verse 5. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Why does he emphasize that point? Well, the point that Stephen is making is that God was working in Abraham's life even when Abraham hadn't had possession of the promised land and there was no temple. You know, it's an important point, especially for those who venerated the temple. They can't imagine that there would be a blessing from God apart from the temple. 
And that is, Abraham, the father of our faith, was a pilgrim without the advantages that were enjoyed by the Jews of his day. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, the land of Israel was unimportant. I mean, Stephen acknowledges it is. He mentions the 400 years in Egypt and also the promise that the ancestors of Abraham would get back to the land of Abraham's sojourning. And they would indeed worship the Lord in this place. See, from that, Stephen is countering the slander that he speaks incessantly against this place. Instead, he affirms that he knows that this is the land that God has given to Abraham and his children. Now, before we go on to the next section, I think it's important to point out, you know, what for some scholars constitutes some factual problems. You know, for one, it wasn't 400 years. It was 430 years in Egypt. And second, in verse 3, he says, God spoke to Abraham in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. But in Genesis 12, it makes it sound like the call of God happened in Haran, not in Mesopotamia. And there are other such minor variations in Stephen's speech, and I'm not going to get into all of them. But lest we think that Stephen had all his facts wrong, it's important to note that making grand sweeping statements the way he does always allows for generalizations rather than technical accuracy that this way of speaking that Stephen was using, that it was common in all Jewish literature at the time. It was just socially acceptable to speak in grand generalizations. No one in the Sanhedrin took issue with Stephen speaking this way because that's the same way that their own rabbis spoke as well. Indeed, some Jewish traditions of that day did say that God already spoke to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So what Stephen is saying was simply well accepted by the Jews. See, the point of the speech for Stephen is to establish his credentials. Stephen lets the Sanhedrin know that he believes that it was God who spoke to Abraham. And it was, in his words, the God of glory that spoke to him. And the God of glory had been revealing his glory long before Israel inherited the land and long before they had a temple. But at this moment, Stephen is just getting going. We know that making trustworthy Bible teaching available to all Canadians is important to you. It is with that in mind that we created the 1119 Fellowship, a monthly giving program. This fellowship program ensures that the true wisdom found in the Bible will continue to be shared and made available for generations to come. One of our 1119 members wrote to say, I know that I can trust what is taught by Dr. Neufeld. This is why we're monthly supporters of this ministry. I've been so encouraged by the teaching of the Bible. The research that has been done by Dr. John has opened my eyes to the truths of the Bible. Thank you. God bless you. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship, the benefits of joining and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call 1-800-663-2425. So Stephen has started his defense. I love the God of Abraham, the God of glory. I affirm that it was God who called Abraham and brought him out to this place. It's central to your faith. It's central to mine as well. You know, Christians, if they know their Bible, will say the same thing. Let's keep on following Stephen's defense. We come now to Acts 7, 9 to 16. 
And the patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So here for the first time, Stephen begins introducing sins that always have attended the offspring of Abraham. You know, by the time he gets to the end of his speech from verse 51, he's going to say, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That is to say, why should anyone think it remarkable that you have rejected Jesus as your Messiah? You've rejected everything that God has done. That's what the long history of the First Testament actually teaches us. But Stephen isn't going to go there right away. He wants to be very careful as he answers the charges that are brought against him. And here, he moves to the account of Joseph. You know, anyone who studies the book of Genesis with care will soon recognize that the family of Jacob was falling apart. Not only did the ten brothers sell Joseph into slavery, but there were many other sins that also attended them and that the family was slowly being absorbed into Canaanite culture and would soon be no more. Notice that Stephen mentions that it was the patriarchs that sold Joseph into slavery. It was our forefathers, he wants to say. It was they that acted in this despicable fashion. But God rescued Joseph. And so Stephen is planting the seed here. The founders of Israel and God were definitely not on the same page. So how important it is to remember that. It's not your heritage that makes you right with God. Even if you, my dear friend, come from a line of, you know, 10 generations of Christians, that heritage will not define you before God. So then Stephen moves to the matter of the famine and Jacob's desire that his sons should go to Egypt to buy food. And, and as before, Stephen shortens the story. Instead of telling all the details, he simply relates the fact that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and that's how Israel came to live in Egypt those 400 years or so. And what's important in retelling this story is that Jacob, the father of Joseph, yeah, he was buried in Israel, but he actually died in Egypt. And furthermore, the only place where Jacob could be buried was in that one tomb that Abraham had purchased so many years earlier. And several things should jump out at us. First, God saved his rebellious people in spite of their sinfulness, not because of their righteousness. And second, and this is so important, Stephen has demonstrated that he believed that it was the mercy of God that spared Israel. The glory for Israel's story lay not in the faithfulness of Israel, but in the God who had mercy. It's so important because one of the charges made against Stephen was that he was blaspheming God. Indeed, he has been demonstrating that he believes exactly the opposite. God receives all glory for the people of Israel. Whatever Stephen was, he was definitely not a blasphemer. But we also remember that Stephen's enemies were making the charge that this man speaks against Moses and against the law. So it's this next charge that we consider. We're reading Acts 7, 17 to 21. 
But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. By saying that Moses was a beautiful child, Stephen is not implying, you know, that all that marked Moses was that he was a good-looking kid. The point is that God looked with favor on Moses. Moses was precious in God's sight. So while other children were being put to death, God preserved Moses' life. God had chosen his deliverer. Stephen is still not done. Not only did God favor Moses, but also Moses was exceedingly wise, well-educated, mighty in words and deed. Moses, according to Stephen, was a remarkable man. Now to Acts 7, 23 to 29. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. So Stephen is repeating something the writer of Hebrews would say years later. Speaking of Moses, Hebrews 11.25 says, that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And then not done with that, the writer of Hebrews says that Moses thought that the reproach or the suffering that went along with the hope of the Messiah was greater than all the riches that might have been his in Egypt. That's what Stephen is saying here. Moses acted to save an Israelite slave who was being beaten to death by an Egyptian overlord. Moses decided he would stand with the people of God. But as Stephen retells the story, he's laying emphasis on the fact that Israel did not rise up to praise Moses. Indeed, when Moses tried to intervene in the case of two quarreling Israelite men, they demanded to know who made Moses their ruler. See, from the outset, says Stephen, the people of Israel who today so claim to honor Moses, well, they actually defied his leadership. Indeed, they did it with vigor so that Moses became exposed for killing the Egyptian, and that's what forced him to flee. Now to verses 30 to 35. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt." This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in a bush. So let's summarize what Stephen has been saying, shall we? 
Israel was in bondage in Egypt, and God chose Moses to be the agent of mercy to his sinning people. Moses didn't volunteer to be Israel's savior, just as, you know, he didn't volunteer to be spared when the Egyptians were killing the male children in Egypt. Moses was chosen by God to be Israel's savior. In answer to the man who had said, who appointed you a ruler and judge over us? Stephen responds by saying, God appointed him. It was God's call that Moses should be the deliverer, but Israel refused to acknowledge what God had done. And that was the point. This Moses whom they rejected, let that sink into your heart, says Stephen. Stephen is being accused of blaspheming Moses, so he's responding. Moses was God's chosen instrument of grace to Israel, but it was Israel, and not I, says Stephen, who rejected Moses. Stephen's point, don't argue that I reject Moses, for I don't. I recognize his special place in God's redemptive history, but let's not be naive. Moses was not honored. Stephen helps us to answer the question, what's the relationship of the Christian faith to the First Testament? The answer is, that we know that the First Testament is the Word of God. So the real question for us is this, will we honor the God that we find there, or will we simply retell the story without making application? That's Stephen's accusation against his accusers. Thanks, John. You know, I think it's fair to say that most of us actually overlook the Old Testament as a tool for sharing the gospel but it really does merit understanding how the gospel permeates the first 39 books of the Bible, doesn't it? Oh, it really does. You know, we do need to spend far more time in the Old Testament or the First Testament and recognize that it is what fills out the understanding of Jesus. It also gives us an entire Bible. I mean, we're suddenly given us 66 books rather than just 27, recognizing that God has given all of them for our own well-being and for understanding Jesus more greatly. Let me also say that, you know, when we read of some of the characters in the Old Testament, it's great to to think about Jesus, how he has done what that character has done, but even better. I mean, Isaac went up to the altar. Jesus went up to an altar. You know, Moses parted the waters, but Jesus parted the way into the Holy of Holies. I mean, all of these things, once we are tuned to it, can see Jesus in all of the Bible. Thanks again, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We want to thank you for your faithful prayers and generous gifts that help ensure that solid Bible teaching is available around the world. Because of your generosity, All of our international Bible teaching efforts and partnerships happen, including the distribution of Dr. John's new book, Making the Most of Your Salvation, being made available in 11 key languages distributed across India. It's such a privilege to work in partnership with you and ministry friends like Back to the Bible India and Back to the Bible Sri Lanka. As we work together, Bible resources are being made available around the world. And a special thank you for your gifts the gifts you sent during our international focus in March. And may I encourage you to continue to support these international partnerships throughout the year, or even consider becoming an international monthly partner. To learn more or to offer a gift in support of international ministries, visit Back to the Bible 
www.cbcc.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.